0: If you have your Bibles, uh, take your Bible and whatever form you might have and turn to Jeremiah chapter 46. I don't know if we're going to get through this whole thing, but I'm going to cover a lot of territory today. But what we're talking about today is... Um, How the prophecies that are speaking directly to the nations are really relevant for us as individual people. Um, We are at the point in the book of Jeremiah where he's uh, now an old man. Uh, He is in Egypt. He is not there because he wants to be, he's been kidnapped. Uh, his fellow countrymen, after warning them that they should not go to Egypt, they went anyway and they took him with them. I suppose they figured that that would guarantee their safety if they had this guy with them. He had already seen Jerusalem captured. He had seen the temple burned. He had seen the king's house destroyed. He would seen the king not only captured but had his eyes poked out. Uh, he, had, he had seen a whole bunch of stuff. And he's probably at a point now where he wants to get a, a trailer and a pickup and go and retire. I thought I'd hear more amens than that. <laughs> but they, this actually closes with a series of messages that are addressed to the surrounding nations. And we're going to look at these and get as far as we can today. If you remember, Jeremiah was called to be a prophet, and God said to him in Jeremiah 1:10, He said, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And so while Jeremiah's uh, focus of ministry was on the people of Judah, he was called to be a prophet to the nations. And so at the end of the book, he's, we have the recordings of the things that God told him to tell the nations. And he starts with Egypt, and he ends up in Babylon. So he's kind of doing a a circle. He's going south, and he's going to work his way up. And as we look at this section, we're going to see the truth that it comes in actual layers. It comes in several ways to us. There is a historical thing. The things that he said are historical. They are specific to these people, specific things that God is going to do. But they also kind of... Help us see something about ourselves. And if you, when you read your Bible, that's a good way to uh, look at the Bible, is how does God describe different people, and how does that actually fit me? Because sometimes, you know, we don't want to uh, identify ourselves with the wicked sinners of the Bible, but maybe, maybe we have more in common with them than we want to admit and we need to have God work in us. So, with that in mind, we're going to begin at chapter 46, verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations, about Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, dealt with them. So, in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar first attacked Judah, and the armies of Egypt saw this attack coming, and they tried to stop him at Carchemish, which was way up north near Babylon, near the Euphrates River. And it remains one of the most strategic battles of all history. Egypt had been the most powerful nation on the earth. And the biggest threat to them was Babylon. And so they thought, we're going to go and we're going to cut them off at the pass. But they were defeated. And Egypt went from the premier nation of the world on a downhill slide in a big hurry. Now, the symbolism of this is that Egypt often references the world's influence upon us. How many of you remember that Egypt was the place of tyranny and bondage for Israel when they were slaves? And shortly after the Exodus, when They had been praying, oh, God, get us out of here. This is horrible. You've got to see our toil. You've got to see. And then Moses comes and he delivers them. And they are on the way to the promised land. And they're going, oh, that we were back in Egypt. How many of you can identify with that? You say, oh, that's just really dumb. But the reality of it is is they were used to the life in Egypt and now they were facing things that they had never had to deal with for centuries and they were they no longer could really rely on themselves they couldn't just get by with the situation they had they were a completely different situation and and now they're like oh you know there were leeks and onions by the nile you know it was comfortable there really But it stands for the lure of the world in the life of the believer. We come to Jesus Christ to set us free from sin, but there's this constant, well, you know, the things I used to do, they were pretty fun. I really enjoyed that. Things were a little easier. You know, before I became a Christian, I had a sin problem. But now that I'm a Christian, I have a problem with sin. And I like the other better. And so that's what Egypt can symbolize for us. As we look at verses 7 and 8, it says, Who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. Every spring, the Nile River rises and overflows its banks, and it restores Egypt. It it brings uh, fertile soil. And the prophet was using this picture to show us the way that the world confronts us. It does it in surges and waves. Once we think we have it licked, it will come at us again to try to lure us and enslave us again. And then look at verse 17. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, quote, noisy one who lets the hour go by. Now, I think that God was the first tweeter. Because this kind of sounds like Donald Trump, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, it's literally the noisy one who likes to kill time. (laughs) And that's what he calls the Pharaoh. And that is the characterization of Egypt, and it's the characterization of the world. It's it's one way that we can recognize the world. It likes noise. It doesn't want to stop and think. But in Ephesians chapter five, we're said be, we're told be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord, what the will of the Lord is. So the the world comes at us. It's noisy. It's clanging. It's trying to grab our attention. It comes in surges. It's trying to bring us back to the ease that we thought we experienced in our previous life and we need to be aware of it and then here's a literal promise God gives in verse 26 I will deliver them into the hands of those who seek their life into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and his officers so this is going to happen it did happen historically but then God says afterward Egypt shall be inhabited as the days of old says the Lord Isaiah 19 gives a promise, too, that they will eventually become God's, named God's people. Very interesting to me, that this nation that once enslaved God's people, God intends to bless in the last days. You know, Egypt did sleep for centuries. It was just kind of there. It wasn't really doing much for a long time. But now it's a sovereign nation again, and it really is a significant key In the Middle East. So God keeps His word. The second nation is Philistia. In chapter 47, it speaks to a nation that's closely associated with Egypt, and that is the Philistines. There are some people that believe that the Philistines were actually ethnically or genetically connected to Egypt and had migrated north and settled along the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. You remember the Philistines, uh, the Can anybody remember their most famous warrior? Goliath. Goliath. This is a land where the giants lived. There were a lot of people that were remnants of that which took place in Genesis chapter 6. And Goliath was one of these guys. They lived in the land of promise. They were in the land that God told Israel to conquer, but Israel never was successful in driving them out. And as, as such, they became a snare to the people of Israel. And they symbolize the person who claims to be a Christian, but is actually an enemy of the true faith. You know, Do you know why people have such a, a rough time with Christianity? Why they have such a difficult time? Because of people who call themselves Christians. There are a lot of people who are Christian in name only. People who say, well, I, you know, I, I when I was in Sunday school when I was six years old, I prayed a, a prayer. I'm a Christian. Or I go to church. Or I was baptized. But no fruit, no life. That's what Philistia sounds like. Jeremiah 47, 1-4. Thus says the Lord, Behold, waters are rising out of the north and shall become an overflowing torrent, They shall overflow the land and all that fills it, the cities and all who dwell in it. Men shall cry out, and every inhabitant of the land shall wail at the noise of the stamping of the hooves of his stallions, at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of their wheels. The fathers look not back to their children, so feeble are their hands, because of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon, Every helper that remains. For the Lord is destroying the Philistines, the remnant of the coastline of Captor. And so, today, that nation does not exist. The Philistines are gone. Now, we turn to chapter 48. And there are five nations now that he's going to address. Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus... And Kedor or Arabia and these all represent something else and there is a link between all of them because they're all related to Israel they picture for us what the Bible calls the flesh we have three enemies as Christians there's the devil there's the world and there's the flesh and guess which one is the worst the flesh. It's the part of human nature inherent within us from which we must war with until our bodily resurrection. It is the enemy of faith. It is the enemy of the Holy Spirit. It is an inner enemy. And so chapter 48, the first six verses, uh, all the way rather to the first six verses of chapter 49 it deals with two nations, Moab and Ammon, and the the, the uh, passage attributes the downfall of these nations, and Moab and Ammon were sons of Lot. Now, do you guys remember that story? When Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, Lot and his family were living in Sodom, and God, by the... Mercy and grace that he bestowed and answered a prayer to Abraham went to rescue Lot. He got Lot and his wife and his daughters out of there and they fled. But their daughters, when they realized that what had happened, they, rather than having trust in God, completely relied on their own ingenuity and their own flesh because they were terrified that their 401k wasn't going to be there when they retired. You say, well, what am I talking about? Well, in that culture, if you didn't have sons, if you didn't have children to take care of you, you were were destitute. And so they were going, "We'll, we'll never be married. We'll never have children. So what'd they do? They got Lot drunk. And then they went in and seduced him and Both of them conceived, the first was Moab, the second was Ammon. That's where these two nations came from. They were the product of an incestuous situation. And yet they are related to Israel as Lot was related to Abraham. Now Moab is to the east of the Dead Sea, if you could picture in your mind a map of the Middle East, and Ammon is to the north of Moab, so you've got the Dead Sea the Dead Sea's right here. You've got Moab and Ammon, okay. And in forty-eight, verse eleven, it says, "Moab has been at ease from his youth and is settled on his lees. That is, he's resting on his rear end." Okay. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. So taste remains in him, and his scent is not changed. This is poetic language, but it's basically saying that Moab was so far off the beaten track that these nations that would go through trying to conquer each other, they would go through the land of Israel or the land of Palestine, but Moab was off to the side and not, un, not important. So they, they just sat there at ease. They were sitting on their rear ends. And uh, they, when he says uh, the taste remains in them, it says that basically is they never even worked up a thirst. <laughs> and his scent has not changed means they never sweat. Okay? And so here they are. They've never been attacked. They've never had anything. So they get smug, self satisfied. They're going, everything's fine. You know, we're better than everybody else. Everybody else is having trouble. We're not having trouble. And that smugness is one of the attributes of our flesh. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I shall send to him tilters who will tilt him and empty his vessels and break his jars in pieces. And then Moab shall be ashamed of Shemos, their God, just as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel in their confidence. And so Bethel was a place where Israel had worshipped two golden calves. And God says, just like I destroyed Israel, Moab's going to get pulverized because of their idolatry. Verses 29 and 30. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his loftiness. His pride is arrogance and the haughtiness of his heart. I know his insolence, says the Lord. His boasts are false. His deeds are false. This is the deception of our flesh in our own lives. We think we are really something when we are not. The apostle tells us we ought not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And when things are going right, don't we have a tendency to say, well, you know, I'm why not? I deserve it. Or I did this. I, you know, I worked hard for this stuff, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Things go wrong. It's all God's fault. Right? But why is God doing this to me? Things are going right, look at what I've done. Things are going wrong, look what he's done. And this is the flesh that works within us. And that's what Moab is showing us. And then connected to Moab is Ammon to the north. The present capital of Jordan is Ammon. Does that sound familiar? You guys know where Jordan is? Jordan is on the east side of the uh, Jordan River. And it separates Israel from their nation of Jordan. Their capital is Ammon, Ammon. (laughs) It's not a coincidence. Typologically, Ammon stands for the same thing as Moab, but it has this addition. It is more aggressive and warlike than Moab. You see, Moab is kind of the smugness. But Ammon is like pushing an agenda of self it's aggressive and the promise that God made to both these nations which is staggering in verse 48 or 47 of chapter 48 yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days and in chapter 49 verse 6 but afterward I will restore the fortunes of Ammon who deserves that Stand up if you deserve heaven. Stand up if you deserve God's blessing. We've got to check these things in our heart, don't we? But yet God, to these nations, in His faithfulness says, I'm going to restore their fortunes. So whenever the Lord comes back. It'll be an interesting thing to see how the whole face of the Middle East is going to be with Egypt blessed, being called God's people, with Israel, with Moab and Ammon to the east being blessed. Interesting to me. I'm going to tackle one more nation and then we'll break until the next time we get together. In verses 7 to 22, we have a prophecy against a place called Edom. This is south of the Dead Sea. For many centuries, its capital was a place called Petra. Has anybody ever heard of Petra? Has anybody ever seen pictures of it or been there and seen it? Anybody? Donna's seen it. I've only seen pictures. Bill, you saw it. Okay, it's It's an amazing city carved out of rock. And all the rock is red, hence the word Enum. Esau was the father of this nation. Remember why Esau was called Esau? Because he came out red. Okay? He was the twin brother of, who knows, Jacob or Israel. And Esau is a picture of a man of the flesh, who opposes and is contrary to the Spirit. You know, Esau despised his birthright. He came in one day. He was really hungry. He said, give me some of that stew there you've got. And Jacob says, well, sell me your birthright. And Esau's like, well, what good is that to me if I die? Short-sighted, immediate gratification. Yeah, you can have my birthright. And he eats and he goes off. And the Bible says he despised his birthright. Esau was a man impetuous. However, if you had Jacob and Esau in this room and got to know the both of them, you'd probably like Esau better. You know, he was a hunter. He was a, he was a good guy. Just impetuous and fleshy. Jacob was completely different. He was conniving. <laughs> you know, he was he'd stab your back. He'd smile at your face and stab your back. Esau is what you see is what you get. We prefer an Esau. But the truth of the matter is we also have to watch in our own spirit this impetuousness that we've just got to have something now and that we'd be willing to compromise our spiritual relationship with God for some kind of an immediate payoff. And so in verses 8 to 10, it says, Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring calamity of Esau upon him, The time when I punish him. If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, would they not destroy only enough for themselves? But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places, and he's not able to conceal himself. His children are destroyed, and his brothers, and his neighbors, and he is no more. And to this day, the only thing that remains of Edom are the ruins of Petra. And so true to his word, God did this. Now, I'm not going to go with the last two because we're out of time. And I'm kind of wondering where there was no amen there. But um, It'll be two weeks, but that's all right. But the point of it is this. What? What have you heard today? That God speaks to nations, and we need to oftentimes look at the message and ask ourselves, how do I fit? We could do that with Israel. Israel was not the epitome of a great faithful people. (laughs) But there were great faithful people in it. The nations are oftentimes described in unflattering terms. But if you read your Bible, there really is not much flattering about us. But there was one man, Jesus, the righteous one, who came in flesh, bore our sin, dying on that cross, rising from the dead, so that God could take us and transform us. But we're still in a war. We're still in a battle. We have not been delivered from the presence of these enemies, the world, the devil, and the flesh. They still are around us. They still attack us from without and from within. But we have something something far, far greater. We have the Lord himself dwelling in us by his spirit. And the Bible tells us that the spirit is at war with the flesh, and the flesh is at war with the spirit. And both desire us. But God has said to us, which do you choose? We walk by faith. The Spirit of God gives us the grace we need to walk in the light, to overcome darkness, to even overcome our own fears, even to the point where if we were to lay our lives down, we would have the grace to do it. So the victory is won, but we're still in the battle. How we live it is crucial, and it's crucial to the ongoing work of, of the Lord and his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for words that are ancient. They go all the way back to hundreds, thousands of years ago, but they still speak plainly to us today. And we give thanks to you, Lord, that you have provided a remedy for our sin. And not only a remedy for sin, but you've provided the power of God to overcome the nature of sin within us. So thank you for these things, Lord. We ask your blessing as we ponder these things and as we continue to live in this life. May you bless, Lord, the next session with Mark and Leah. May you bless the kids in their classes. And may Christ be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.